CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Discover more about society, danger, culture and crime at www.routledge.com forward slash philosophy. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Facts are assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Visions of a violent and lawless future are commonplace, yet strangely, crime's actually fallen by some 66% in the UK in the last two decades, and we're less likely to fall victim to an act of violence than we have ever been. So do we want to imagine that our world is dangerous because our lives have actually become too safe? Or is the world scarier than the figures actually suggest? So, discussing all this, Finn Mackay, who is a senior lecturer in sociology at UWE in Bristol, described by The Guardian as a world-changing woman. Brendan O'Neill, on the end, is the editor of Spiked Online, a libertarian magazine um, focusing on politics, culture and society. Chris Bryant is a former Anglican priest and is now a Labour MP. He's the shadow minister for the House of Commons and he was Minister of State for Europe. So, Chris Bryant, first of all, are we really rather too safe these days? Yesterday, I, I was um, on the Yes campaign in Pontypris and we were giving out leaflets for um, Remain campaign. And this woman came up to me. Um, she's a senior manager, manager at one of the local hospitals. And she said she was going to make vote uh, to leave because she was now so frightened when she went down into Cardiff because there were so many people who spoke different languages that she will never go to Cardiff again. Now, it's, it's really easy to kind of feel a kind of snobbish regard about that and think, well, how stupid are you? But I also remember in 2005 when the bombs happened in London, um, and for that matter, after September 11, none of the schools in my constituency would send a school visit to London for about 10 years because they were too frightened of the big city and, and what might happen to them there. Um, and I asked, so I ask myself regularly, why is that? And, and, and a part of, a partly, of course, it's because the world has changed. Where my dad, when my parents were young, my dad was the first person to take a group of um, uh, from South Wales on a coach trip to the coast, to the Costa Brava. Um, and now one in four people go to Spain every year. So in one sense, we're much more used to a globalised world. But also some of that is quite disturbing because not everybody speaks English. Not everybody um, looks exactly... I mean, we're all slightly ginger, apart from you. Um, but, um, but, but, my but, but there, are there are real anxieties that people have. Yeah. 
Uh, and then when you th- and then when you get pe- get into discussion about safety, they say, "Well, I'm not going to let my kids out of my sight because of paedophiles." And they'll say, "You're f- you know th- the number of ch- child abductions now is much higher than it ever was." This is completely untrue. The number of child abductions is much lower than ever. I partly blame the media because 30 years ago, if the, if a child was abducted, there'd be a single uh, you know kind of four-inch piece in a newspaper. Today it'll be eight pages every day for three weeks. Um, and that creates a degree of hysteria. Um, it's understandable the, you know, the emotion and, and so on that goes with it, and people are trying to sell newspapers, but I think that's created a, an unnatural sense of fear. Li- likewise, you know, everybody's frightened of a stranger murder. You're far more likely to be murdered by somebody you know, by your partner. Um, so what I want to know is how do we transform this? Well, partly I'd like a more responsible media. Um, I, I, d- I don't know how that's achievable. Um, I do want us to go back to a world where not all children are mollycoddled and wrapped in cotton wool. Years and years ago, I was in an organisation called the National Youth Theatre. They used to audition in Bristol every year. And the director of the National Youth Theatre would ring my mother and say, is it all right if Chris comes and does his audition and stays the night? And nobody would have said no. Nobody would say yes today. And in a way, I think that means that we've, we've lost an element of freedom and sometimes the freedom to get things wrong. Finn. Firstly, I'd add a note of caution about um, published official statistics. Um, what is even considered a crime, for example, has changed over the years. Um, it wasn't until 1991 here that rape in marriage was classed as a crime. And last year we saw the introduction of a new crime on the statute in domestic abuse contexts, which is a crime of coercive control, much publicised, of course, not least in The Archers, the famous Archer storyline. So there we go, that'll start being measured now. So the most recent crime statistics, yes, they suggest that many types of crime are falling, and the headlines suggest that as well. What is interesting to me is that articles on how crime is falling often include themselves within those very articles that sexual offences, however, have in fact risen by around 29% to the highest on record. So from a feminist perspective, I think it is noteworthy that every headline can scream that crime is falling and then make a nod in that very article to the fact that sexual violence continues to be so prevalent, as if that crime is somehow different as if it doesn't count. And of course, much of this type of crime we know isn't counted at all. Recent HMIC investigations found police forces around the country routinely no criming rape reports, for example, and that was well covered. The attrition rate in rape cases in this country is high, higher than it's ever been. That's the gap between report and court stage. The CPS drop cases that don't meet a stereotypical notion of what rape is and what a victim is. We know from research by Professor Sylvia Walby that violent incidents of domestic abuse are being woefully undercounted. So women are often subject to uh, multiple incidents of violence, but meanwhile the numbers of reports are capped at five due to the way that the surveying and the recording works. At the moment there's a cross-party campaign um, looking into online abuse. High-profile women have come forward to talk about the threats and stalking and harassment that they're bombarded with. Much of these experiences never make their way into any sort of official statistics. CEOP, the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Agency, report that the volume of child abuse images online is rising. The abuse they are analysing is becoming more extreme, and I used to work with that organisation. Most of these incidents don't end up in any statistics either, and those victims and faceless abusers will likely never be found. 
Now, as a feminist, I'm no fan of the criminal justice system. I don't for one minute think that more laws or more prisons or more convictions are going to be some sort of cure-all for the problems in our society. But what I do bulk at, while we have the system that we do, is that those crimes that should surely be seen as the most heinous, crimes against women and children, perpetrated by the very people that they should be able to love and trust the most, are rarely seen at all and rarely see any kind of justice. Today, as every day, over 200 women and children will have been turned away from women's aid refuges alone, simply due to lack of space. And meanwhile, of course, our government continues to cut and shut specialist provisions for those fleeing violence. I doubt that crime feels like such a moral panic if you're one of the one in five women affected by sexual violence. I doubt it feels such a moral panic to those families of the two women every week in this country who lose their lives to domestic violence. Brendan. The thing that I find fascinating is the way in which the, over the past 30 years or so, I would say, the politics of fear has shifted from being a cynical project of the right to becoming the, the, the key project of the left. This is the really interesting dynamic that we've seen in recent decades, I think. You know, I'm just about old enough to remember when, if there was a moral panic, it tended to come from the right. It came from, you know, the Blue Rinse Lobby, uh, the Mary Whitehouse Brigade, people who were on the right who were generally suspicious of the public, particularly certain sections of society, you know, let's not beat around the bush, white working class communities, blacks, various other, usually men, men were seen as very rapacious, women were seen as very vulnerable. And, you know, you had, uh, in the 1950s, you had moral panics about teddy boys, and then later in the 60s, you had moral panics about mods and rockers. Um, and, and then later on, it became about football hooligans in the 70s and about black muggers in the 1980s. All these panics about certain constituencies that were untrustworthy and which were plummeting our society into this kind of doom tended to come from the right. But I think recently there's been a shift, and the people who you hear most often now uh, who, who ped peddle the politics of fear are those who describe themselves as left. And as someone who comes from the left, uh, a, 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 the radical left, in fact, I find that really, really depressing. The left is now, the, the, they are the ones who now talk about rapacious men. Uh, you know, they use the phrase behind closed doors, the suggestion being that every family home is a potential hotbed of abuse and disgusting behavior. It is. They're the ones, <laughs> well, in my experience it's not, and in most normal exper people's experience it's not. Well, it's actually, in, in the Marxist definition, the family is the heart in a heartless world. It's where people retreat. And it's an aspiration. Um, and an aspiration. I think what we've, s and now you see, it's, it's those on the left, and particularly actually feminists, and I'm not talking here about women, I'm talking about a small section of a political society called feminists, who are now, I think, at the forefront of the politics of fear, and who often rehabilitate, actually, a lot of the arguments that we used to hear from the right. So, for example, it used to be the right who argued that pornography would warp men's minds to such an extent that they would rape and harm women. It now is the left who makes that argument. It used to be the right who argued that there would be a nuclear apocalypse and we will all die. It's now the left that argues that there will be an environmental apocalypse because of our behavior and we will all suffer as a consequence of that. And I think the worst phrase that is used by the left-wing peddlers of the politics of fear is this idea of the tip of the iceberg. They always say that th the stats we have, the provable stats we have, are just the tip of the iceberg. And who and basically what they're saying is, who knows what's going on under the surface of society? Because obviously, we're all foul 
untrustworthy creatures who knows what we're doing to each other behind closed doors. And I think what that does, that, 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 I, that phrase, the tip of the iceberg, we can never really know how awful humanity is. We only have a glimpse of the awfulness. Really, I think, preys on the worst aspects of our imagination. It preys on the most misanthropic aspects of our imagination. And we all have a tendency, hor a horrible tendency towards misanthropy. And this new left-wing politics of fear preys on that in a really horrible way, actually. And it, it, it generates mistrust in communities and mistrust between people. My experience and the vast majority of people experience, including women, including all the women I know, is that you can generally trust people. And the left used to be about saying people should come together. Now the left is saying you can't even trust your, the people you live with. So taking all that in hand, if we look at risk and danger, Chris, are they ever, is danger ever something to be desired? Is it ever a force, a positive force? Well, being able to perceive danger is obviously a positive one because it's, it means you can avoid danger. Um, and, and indeed, it's something that politicians exploit a great deal. Um, you know, many elections are about fear versus hope. But I think one of the most complicated things for a human being to master, my nephew, who's a um, a mathematician it tried to explain this to me recently, is risk is really difficult to learn. It's the last thing you learn at school when you're, you know, if you're doing A-level maths because it is really difficult to master. But you don't necessarily see embracing risk as a positive thing. Well, I suppose part of the question is, is I don't think that the ordinary person thinks, am I safer than I was 20 years ago or than people were 30 years ago? They think, am I safe? Am I going to be safe? And the things that make them feel unsafe are a whole smorgasbord of things. I mean, I've seen millions of murders now. On the telly? On the telly, yes. Um, That's what I'm assuming. <laughs> but, but 80 years ago, you, you might see two okay. in your lifetime. So, but are you, as, as Brendan might suggest then, someone from the left, in danger of perhaps peddling a, a moral panic, the politics of fear? Uh, well, I don't think I'm, I'm in the business of doing that, but I am very, very conscious that all the people who've been murdered in my constituency are, are as a result of domestic violence. And when I talk to the, my local police, they will say that all the crimes added up in my constituency, um, domestic violence outbeats beats the rest. Finn, you've been, you've been accused of sort of a, a feminist agenda that overplays the risk. So I think when we look at things like child sexual abuse, um, domestic abuse, we can't really apply the term moral panic to that. So a moral panic means something whipped up disproportionately to what it actually is. Now your friends, you know, Brendan's friends must be very lucky. I know, most women I know have experienced some form of sexual harassment or sexual violence. And I, I haven't got enough fingers on my hands to tell you the amount of women close to me and around me who've been raped. We don't talk about that. Um, we don't talk about that as a culture because of, you know, lots of uh, sexual repression, because of a cultural shame which is put onto the victims of those crimes, because of hang-ups about sex and sexuality. Um, we need to be careful about using this term and throwing it around moral panic. Uh, I think um, the problem, is that I think, is that the new feminism has the tendency to present women as being particularly vulnerable. The original feminism was largely an argument against that idea. And this is not something that I've come up with. 
in my brain, this is an argument that's made by lots of influential feminists. In America, it's made by Nadine Strossen, Wendy Kaminer, Camille Paglia, really serious, substantial feminists. Really? Yeah, Nadine Strossen no, was president of the American Civil Liberties Union for 20 years, so that's pretty right. substantial. Um, so these are serious people who've argued that feminism has lost direction and has gone from being asserting women's autonomy to accentuating the idea of women's victimhood. That's a real shift, and I think we can talk about that. I would say the idea that uh, you can't apply the term moral panic to child sexual abuse is so is beyond wrong. The danger here, right, if you say something's a moral panic, people instantly assume you think it's not happening. Of course it happens. Of course black people in the 1980s mugged people. Of course there were football hooligans in the 1970s who caused a lot of damage. But the moral panic gives, as you say, Finn, the moral panic gives the impression that they are, uh, are, are deep-rooted problems that are, are, are be beyond measurement. And I think child sexual abuse, right, let's just look at what happened in Britain in the late 80s and the early 90s when there was the satanic abuse panic. Families were ripped apart by feminists and social workers who convinced themselves that these families were taking their children into forests at night and allowing um, Satanists to rape them and forcing them to... In B. Campbell's in words, Beatrix Campbell, very influential feminist, wrote a piece in Marxism Today in which she said that parents were forcing children to eat shit from silver trays. It never happened. It, it didn't happen. And, and, and again and again over the past and 30 years, from the satanic abuse panic through to the news of the world, which was when it went more right, wing, the news of the world's paedophile panic to I what we have today, and I'm afraid, Chris, a lot of this is coming from your deputy leader of your party, in my case, the, the new panic around historical crimes of child sexual abuse and this utter invention by Tom Watson of the idea of a Westminster paedophile ring that was murdering children. The child sexual abuse panic lends itself beautifully and horrendously to moral panic. So we need to be critically minded about all of this stuff. But some might argue, critically minded is one thing, but some might argue that the awareness of such things, there is... Uh, an increased psychological awareness of risk. But I think that can make it worse because what you have is a situation where social workers in particular but also other layers of officialdom become so obsessed with the idea that everyone is harming their children and that the underneath the tip of the iceberg there is this widespread abuse. They become so obsessed with that idea that they are constantly spying on ordinary <laughs> people and missing the cases where I these I things wish, are happening. I, I wish that social workers you know, and, and people have had the sort of had the capacities that you're talking about. I mean, do you know anything about the thresholds required to remove children? Services are, you know, they're, they're cut to within an inch of their lives. They, they can't remove children, even where they think they might, there might be risk. You're talking like multiple reports before anything happens. And I used to work in safeguarding. And we had this problem because people were frightened to talk about issues or seek help because they thought that a fleet of tanks was going to arrive outside the door the minute they asked for help and remove their children. But that's you know, because that of what happened in the 80s happen. and the 90s. No, in the 80s in the 90s, hundreds of working-class families had their children's children taken away from them. Some of those children were then abused in care. Totally. And where I'm they hadn't been abused in their families. So that's why they are suspicious. All I'd say is, I remember when I was a curate in the, in the church, um, there it, it was not uncommon in churches where, which had large youth groups for there to be stories of child abuse. And the church systematically refused to take them seriously because that it was more important to protect the institution than it was to protect the child. And those of us who um, came across instances, you know, we would try to do what we ca could. 
I don't think it's moral panic to have had to fight back against an institution, in my case the church, which systematically wanted to hide the damage that had been done to individuals. Okay. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I want to move away slightly from that specific issue before we wrap up on, the, on this particular aspect of the debate. But I want to ask each of you then, um, is there any value in exposing a child, an individual, to danger, to putting them... Uh, you gave the example of, of being sent off to spend the night with somebody relatively strange in, in Bristol. Is there value in that? Is there value in exposure to danger, knowing, if you like, weighing up the risks, Finn? Um... I grew, I grew up in the countryside, a very rural area, so when I was a child, from about, honestly, from as soon as I could walk, me and my friend who lived up the track, because we didn't even live on a main road, we would be out from dawn till dusk, like roaming the fields, getting into old abandoned houses, making rafts, climbing trees. We broke bones, you know, it's a miracle sometimes we didn't get stuck down the back of a hayloft or harm. something. And, you know, it felt, I f it felt like such a freedom. And, and looking back on it, I feel that I benefited greatly from that. I am certainly not asking for more state scrutiny of, of people or families. Um, I want more freedom from ch for children and for families. You know, I think the message of feminism is actually very positive because it wants to improve gender and sexual relations so that we can feel more free. I think it's all very well saying, oh, really, we're free. It's just a moral panic. You can say that as much as you like, but if a whole load of people don't feel free... OK. Then, Brendan, uh, danger, a bit of danger in life. Yes, is a good thing? exposing children to danger is not only good, it's essential. I think it's the way through. It's like if you keep a child indoors all the time, you know, they have a tendency to develop allergies and hay fever and so on because they're not exposed to nature. It's the same with their moral muscles or, or, their, or, or their mental muscles. If you don't allow them to exercise them for themselves, to, to discover how to become autonomous, then you really will give, give rise to what we have now, actually, which is, a, which is what some people refer to as a generation of snowflakes, which is these students on campus who want every, everything to be a safe space. They don't want to be subjected to offensive ideas. They don't want to be harmed by words. You, you cultivate a, sense of a heightened sense of vulnerability. And I don't think it's just state intervention that does that. I think the culture, the political culture, can also do that. And when you have a situation where politicians and the media and feminists and other political activists, it's not all down to feminism at all, but when you have all these different factors which are saying to people, it's a dangerous world, what consequence do you think that's going to have? That's going to have the consequence of parents becoming more freaked out, children not wanting to go out, and the cultivation of a heightened sense of fragility and a lack of social engagement. This is what the politics of fear has wrought. Brendan, if you uh, say that many of these things that we're, we're led to believe are, are huge dangers facing our children, facing society, you're saying those, some of that is overstated. But are you in danger then of trying to uh, 
preserve an innocence, a sort of Enid Blyton famous five view of the world, which doesn't actually match with reality. Yeah, no, I'm not a fan of Enid Blyton at all, or that view of the world. The world is, the world can be a dangerous place, there's no question about that. But the fact is, it is safer now than it has been in, in any time in living memory. And I think it's an insult to earlier generations to suggest that it isn't. People live longer than they've ever done before. They are healthier than they've ever been. We live in very comfortable, privileged times. People are safe. Um, but people behave as if they aren't. So children are going out less. Fewer children are walking to school. Children aren't cycling to school. All those things that we did in the past, and this is not to romanticize the past, because we got into scrapes and people got abducted and we got injured, that happened. But people are safer now, but behaving as if they are more at danger. When you are constantly told that everything is really dangerous, and particularly for your children, of course you're going to take measures to uh, alleviate that. So I think the current, uh, what I refer to as the left-wing politics of fear, they have a lot to answer for. Finn, are we part of a culture of fear then that isn't helping anybody? Well, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, university safe spaces and um, this idea of people being precious little snowflakes and you implicated feminism in being behind that. And it's important to point out that numerous feminists are, in fact, the ones being no-platformed within, within that very safe space system. I don't... I think that free speech is important and I don't support a lot of what I see in the identity politics um, coming from the arenas that you're talking about. I'm certainly no fan of that um, as a feminist. Um, life used to be nasty, brutish and short. So yes, you know, we don't have a life expectancy of 35. We don't have to have 20 children because, you know, half of them will die. But why are we taking that as some sort of baseline from which we can crow about? You know, we're supposed to be in an advanced society that has progressed in so many ways. And yet, in so many other ways, we haven't, we haven't progressed at all. I think talking about things like child sexual abuse, domestic abuse, is actually really important because I think it gives space and validation to those people who have had those experiences to talk about them. I believe a lot of the people who are coming forward talking about historic sexual abuse I start from a point of belief, and I think that's important. And in my work as a feminist activist and in child protection, I saw what can happen to someone if they don't get any sort of justice and recognition as a child when they're raped or abused, boys and girls. It then affects their whole life and goes on to cost the state, their community, themselves, a great, great deal. Feminists point out that these things happen, and then what happens is people go, ooh, I don't want to hear about all this nasty violence and abuse that's happening. I'm going to shoot oh. the messenger. Can I, uh, firstly, instantly believing people who make accusations might sound very caring, but actually it can be quite destructive. And if you look at the, there was a movement in the 1980s and 90s in America and Britain called Believe the Children. And it was about believing children who said they'd been abused by Satanists. They hadn't been. Those ideas had been implanted in them by social workers over a long period of time. Well, Lee Campbell has gone on to. I don't know why that. you're gasping because you know serious historical, well-researched books have been written proving that this stuff did not happen. The great fear of tyranny is the belief of an accusation. You know, this is right in Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. Is is the word of the accuser sacred now? That's the question they ask. Why is, is it so the difficult for children and women to get a conviction? No, then it's practically uh, well, impossible. No, what I'm saying is the word of the accuser sacred now. If the word of the accuser is sacred, then we are in dangerous, 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 dangerous. Good.
because then okay. we'd be in dangerous times. So Stalin, does your perception of safety but, well, go on, Brendan. But I was just going to say one quick point. I think there's a class element to this because I come from a working class community. They do not have the same views there. When I speak at Oxford and Cambridge and other universities, I meet young women, young feminists, who say, who believe that they are extremely vulnerable. Vulnerable to words, vulnerable to images, vulnerable to abuse. Th they have this sense of vulnerability. I do not see that in the working class communities I come from, amongst either men or women. They do not conceive of themselves as vulnerable at all. They do not think sexual encounters are dangerous. They are extremely robust. They are perfectly capable of dealing with catcalls and street uh, culture, some of which they enjoy, some of which they despise, and they tell people to go fuck themselves and so on and so Let forth. Let them get on with so it So there is a Poor class... People, yeah. that Anything I don't can happen to them, it's fine. No, yeah. they can look after themselves. Don't be so... Because they have to. Because they have to. Could I just say something about a specific instance, which is there was a time when the panic as it were, said, uh, you know, if you contract HIV, then you will eventually die of AIDS. It's a death sentence. And now people don't think it is. And consequently, now um, many young people are, take, are having, taking much more riskier decisions um, in sex. And so you've seen the rise of infections go up quite dramatically amongst younger people. Um, and the other thing I'd say is, in this whole debate, it's all very easy to talk about us being safe in this part of the world. Um, but the truth of the matter is, if you're looking around the world, I'm not sure that it is a safer world than it ever has been. Actually, probably the biggest threat to most people's lives will be climate change, because the people who live um, in the lands that will be most affected by the rising seas and lose their um, clean drinking water are the poorest people in the world, and they are on their, in their millions, if not billions. Um, and if people think that there is going to be a problem with... Um, that there's a problem with immigration today, then there'll be considerably more later. And that takes me just to the thing about immigration, which I think that there is a real, uh, there has been whipped up a storm of moral panic around immigration in which people can no longer differentiate between re a refugee and an economic migrant and somebody who's, um, you know, studying in a different country. Um, and I think that that is a really dangerous place for us to be politically at the moment. But in a sense, I think the thing that is that the perception of safety essentially depends on your class, your gender, and to some extent your geographical location. Your perception of safety, yes, your perception of safety depends on class, but that's a cultural phenomenon. What I'm saying is that I don't think working class communities have this heightened sense of vulnerability, and there's obvious reasons for that, because they have to struggle a lot more than middle class people do. They have to go out into the world and fend for themselves. I'm sorry, I think this is utter and nonsense, so they because my constituents, they develop a sense my of moral autonomy. Which I, I have, the, I have the, one of the constituencies with the highest level of multiple deprivation in the gland. My constituents will often feel most worried about going to places that they don't know and do not understand so th so it's, it's just a well no but it's a, it's a question of safety it's still that same sense of where am I going to be safe and if uh, if anything I want Britain to be a country with more risk takers rather than fewer risk takers because frankly if we're all just sitting around we're just going to be sitting on the sofa watching Midsummer Murders forever <laughs> um, it's not a very Steep fruitful <laughs> well as I say I've seen a lot of murders and also that that we shouldn't that we shouldn't be saying that poor people should just sort of put up and shut up. We don't want a Britain where people burgled every night no. and you've got someone Come sneaking on. in, of nicking course, your kids' toys. Of course people shouldn't put up with burglary. Oh, I've been burgled, that's life. Of course I'm not saying that, but when it comes to 
people engaging with you on the street, whistling at you, shouting at you, speaking to you in a gruff way, or sexual encounters that go wrong. I'm talking about those areas of life which are not criminal, which in my experience, working class communities are better able to deal with. And I think the reason for this is not because they're special, it's because they are they they enter into the world not expecting it to be a safe place. But the middle middle class people thing, are why not? But if you look at if why you look at inner city London or robust. most of the inner cities in this country, uh, um, the, uh, knife crime has risen quite dramatically over the last six years. Um, uh, and in particular, many kids now feel in working class areas, not in, not in Henley, yeah. um, in working class areas, they feel that they've got they to take walk down they've the got street exactly, and they've got to take a knife to or school, take a knife to protect themselves because they're living. This in is fear. a moral uh, knife crime. And of course, is there's a perfect perfect knife crime is a perfect example. They feel under risk. Knife crime is a perfect example of a moral panic. They live with a perfect violence. The United States of America is a perfect knife culture. Knife culture, as they call it. Whenever you want to see if something's a moral panic, see if people are using the word culture. So is there a limit then to how safe we can make the world? Is there a desire for danger on the part of the human condition? And, you know, should there be a limit to how safe we make the world? Because I think we agreed earlier that some danger is good for us. Brendan, why do you think there's a desire for intellectual safe spaces? I think um, the idea of sa the safe space is a trap as it applies on campus, because the idea of the safe space is that you are so vulnerable, you're so fragile, that you have to be protected from racists or sexists or transphobes or various other people who are being no platformed and censored. And what, it's, and what it does, it, the damage it does is far is not to the people who are being no platformed. I've been no platformed by Oxford University because I was supposed to take part in a debate about abortion and I don't have a uterus, as all the students pointed out. Um, it, it's not so much damaging to us, it's damaging to the students who are presumed to be so vulnerable that they have to be contained within this kind of bubble wrap away from any kind of danger. And, you know, this is not an original idea. This goes back to John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill argued in On Liberty, the only way you can become a robust, free individual is by subjecting yourself to risk, to intellectual risk in particular, to ridicule, to argument, to debate, to, to criticism. My argument is that the more that we have this left-wing politics of fear, the more we will cultivate a new generation that thinks it's preferable to live in a safe space than it is to go out and take risks. It's, it's always the other way around is preferable. Finn, I know you are not, from what you said earlier, are not a huge supporter of safe spaces. You believe that intellectually we should be challenged. But then is there a limit to how safe we can be, how safe anyone can be? I don't know. It's it's very abstract. We like you say, we weigh things up, um, we take calculated risks and, and, and I agree that that's a good thing and people need all the information. When it comes to things like safe spaces at university, I don't sign those petitions to not you know, that are against um pick up artists and rape apologists coming to campuses. I think let them come let let us hear their their ridiculous argument and let us hear it being taken down. I think a lot of what's behind this push to safe spaces has come from the identity politics that began in the 1990s, which was actually anti-feminist. So you will not find a lot of, um, a lot of feminists supporting, supporting that stance, that form of identity politics. Certainly not. Should spaces be safe? Yes, of course, as possible. Should we challenge and critique racism, sexism, homophobia when it happens? Of course we should. Um, I agree. The, the, the only, the, I guess this is a really big fundamental disagreement. I think the politics of identity actually comes, even though it takes the form now of being anti-feminist in some ways, Julie Bindel and Jermaine Greer being no-platformed, 
it comes its origins is within feminism from the get-go because no, the, the key problem true. the key problem i think with feminism have you read any of the classic feminist texts or perhaps lots. what j.s mill said about yeah um, women's okay rights. what i'm saying is that the key problem with feminism was the proposition of the idea that the personal is political and the idea that your identity it makes up your public persona and what that gives rise to it that that nurtures in various different ways and it went off in all these different directions that nurtures the politics of identity and the politics of identity is a fundamentally vulnerable ideology because you constantly perceive your identity as being under attack but you said earlier that others. feminism was about you know women's power and women's autonomy yeah i you the original feminism I'm okay so you can't back. have it both ways no i'm it, talking you know, about shallow identity politics the original feminism in terms of the first wave the problem i think starts with the second wave in the 60s and 70s and uh, so i think the a lot of this starts with the second wave even yeah. though they were the ones that were all about women's sexual agency sexual power autonomy some of them were and some of them weren't but then you get in the 80s you get this split between the anti-sex feminists and the pro-sex feminists and the liberal feminists and the illiberal feminists. No, between the anti-sexual the illiberal feminists, feminists are the ones who and won. the porn and rape apologists like Camille Paglia who hasn't got an idea to rub together. Well, here you go. Someone who defends freedom of speech for porn is a porn apologist. This is the argument we get from the new left-wing politics. And someone, who wants when to, I was someone on the left who wants to support the most unregulated, multi-billion dollar industry turning people's sexuality into objects. Well, how is that a left-wing argument? Can I just argument? say, no, no, can I just say something really important? This is exactly what I was talking about earlier. 30 or 40 years ago, 50 years ago perhaps, the people who would have argued that porn was dangerous because it turns men rapacious and it makes women vulnerable to rape and violence were people on the right. Yes. It was. It was the Blue Rinse Lobby. It was the old okay. conservative like Mary women. Whitehouse. It was Mary Whitehouse. Now those arguments have transferred to the left. No, this is what I mean by the left said all along, Men are not toilet-trained gorillas, right? Feminists love men and have hope in men. They say all that Mary Whitehouse stuff was a load of rubbish. The idea yeah, that men don't. are not no, responsible for their own actions. They're going to see a woman's ankle and rape her. Oh, I couldn't help myself. No, That's a load don't. of no, rubbish. They don't. What feminists said was okay. those are gender stereotypes. I get all Discover more about society, danger, culture and crime at www.routledge.com forward slash philosophy. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Arts and Ideas. If you think that the world really is a risky place and we're better safe than sorry, then let us know by tweeting at iai underscore tv with the hashtag philosophy for our times. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. 
Do more with Viator.